Good morning, everyone. Welcome to day 19 of the 7am Novelist March March Writing Challenge. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Today we have Jenna Blum, and she's talking to us about writer moxie, and in particular, how writers can find the balance between their public work and their private work. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me on 7am Novelist. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. Jenna Blum is the New York Times um, an internationally best-selling author of novels, Those Who Save Us, The Storm Chasers, and The Lost Family, the novella, The Lucky One, in the collection Grand Central, and the memoir, Woodrow on the Bench, about her senior Black lab and what his last seven months taught her, now in paperback from HarperCollins. Jenna is one of Oprah's top 30 women writers with her work published in over 20 countries, and she's the co-founder, CEO of the literary social media marketing company, A Mighty Blaze. So Jenna is does so much public work and has done so well with her own writing and publishing. So we're, we're really getting this from the experts. Jenna, how do you do it all? How do you find that balance between the public work that you do and the private work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you for asking that. And I would say the same thing about you, Michelle. You're a novelist who's doing this massive undertaking to help other writers, which I think is so phenomenal. So we're really kindred that way. So the first thing that I want to say to people is that they shouldn't beat themselves up about struggling to find this balance. If you are a writer who is lucky enough to have achieved that balance of needing to find or like achieve that place of needing to find the balance between a public writer life and your private writing life, then you're in a lucky place, right? Like all of us want to get to the space where we can be like, okay, like we have outward facing community and tour and other responsibilities. And then we all need to go sit at home in our yoga pants or underwear or whatever and wrangle with the imaginary characters. And that balance I find is fluid Um, And it completely depends on what's happening in A, my writer life, which sometimes places more demands on me than the public life, and B, the public life, which sometimes places many more demands on me than the writer life. So I tend to think of this, um, and this is even before I um, started The Blades with a bunch of other amazing writers, I think of it as crop rotation. So like those of us who are like, you know, career writers, like we know, and like aspiring writers who've been at this a long time, there's for me a, a research phase for a book. There's the writing phase of a book. I tend to separate those things out. Um, then there's the um, promotional phase of the book when I'm like, you know, getting ready for a launch and doing all that pre-promotion and being out. And then there's the touring phase, which is actually my favorite part. And the reason I write books in the first place is to go out and meet people, <laughs> I think, on tour. Um, and so after that, it starts over again. There's a little fallow period. Um, during which I feel very purposeless in which I am actually right now. And then I started over again and like an idea germinates and I start the research and then the writing. And then, so um, that's just the writing life part of it, but you can already hear the sort of intersectionality there with, okay, sometimes there's a, there's a sort of leaching um, into the writer soil from the public uh, side. So I could be working on a book and somebody will say, Hey, can you do this event for me? Or, um, because I run this amazing organization called a mighty blaze that puts writers online um, to do their, their events. Like we'll get people saying, can you interview this writer or can you, you know, help with this or whatever. So there's a sort of breaching of that, of that crop rotation schedule. It's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. But I love calling it crop rotation because crop rotation requires that you let one piece of land lie fallow for a while, or otherwise you destroy it. (laughs) 
right? Mm -hmm. You have to let it sit or otherwise it's going to die. Um, so you actually have to leave something empty for a while, unplanted for a while and move on to another field in order for it to, or you're, you're mixing up different crops within the same. Um, Cause a lot of writers might think, well, I'm just going to write. Mm -hmm. um, and so do you find, um, which I think every writer should be able to do what they want to do, but, but how is the, because the public life is not necessarily just, it's hopefully not, because this, I think, would slowly kill you, promoting yourself. Um, it's also being a part of the writing community. So how does that in your life, how does that feed your writing? Why do you think that's so important? That's a great question. So yeah, I tend to think of the public life as really being that sort of like Mrs. Maisel, like out on tour thing, which again, I totally love and runs on a completely different battery from yeah. my own life. Like they're opposite ends of the spectrum. One is extremely introverted and one is extremely extroverted. And the writing community, I think, is the happy medium between yeah. those two things. And it, it sort of represents writer sanity for me. So for about 20 years, like you and I are both Grub Street veterans. And I started teaching at Grub like 24 years ago, teaching short fiction, but I shortly morphed into a novel workshop that um, was just then called like novel because there was like a fiction class, poetry class, and then there was like my novel class. And now it's a workshop that people have been jumping in and out of for 20 years. So it's this long, yeah. amazing commitment. We've taken new people every once in a while, but mostly it's like people who are publishing a book. And so they jump out and they come back to start the next book, you know, so that crop rotation pattern shows up very much in this workshop, that mm -hmm. workshop, which is like a once a week, three hour workshop where we sit around and we talk about somebody's cherished work and how to make it better is to continue with my farming metaphor. And like, yeah. it really sinks a taproot for me down into the deep soil of why I do this. Like the, yeah. the joy in writing, the, the sheer joy that people find in sort of, I guess, channeling imaginary people, like not even creating them, but like the inspiration, wherever we get it from, like inventing these imaginary worlds or channeling these imaginary worlds, making them so that other people can see them and appreciate them and be inspired by them and moved by them. That once a week venture into that land is like the joy of my life, honestly. And it is the stability of my life that I have been in fact, there was one class that I taught where I was in a different location for every workshop. It was on Zoom. And people would be like, where are you this week? And I'd be like, I'm in Florida or I'm in Colorado or I'm in whatever. It was just an intense travel period. And it didn't matter because that magic of connecting with the other people, that sort of levitational magic of believing in each other's work was the same. And I, I feel the same way about The Blaze. When we um, interview writers for The Blaze, and I should just quickly do a thumbnail of what Blaze is. Yeah. Um, it's a team of 35 people. We got together the first week of the pandemic to put writers online when their book tours were being canceled. And now the digital platform is here to stay. So we have become rolled into authors tours as they can start to go out into the world again, which is so great. And because everybody was trapped initially, we were able to talk to John Irving and Anna Quinlan and David Duchovny, which was fun. Cause I'm like, oh, did my breasts fall out on Zoom? Hi, David Duchovny. <laughs> <laughs> and all of this was it, Cheryl Strayed and Enrique Dantecat and just the most fantastic people. Um, and uh, listening to these authors talk about their process, talk about their work, talk about their long careers, like giving the debuts a, a chance to say why they started doing this, you know, long 
journey that we all call writing. Again, I would leave those interviews feeling like I had had a writer soul massage and yeah. calm and centered. So that's where that doesn't seem as public to me. Like that is just like pure nourishment, but of course right. it does take time too. Right. Right. Because I mean, a lot of people, you know, they'll sit in their room and they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, I'm doing important work. You know, I'm giving something important to the world with my writer and I'm giving something beautiful to the world. I'm giving something necessary to the world, which is great if they think that, but I say to myself, am I doing that? Because I can't assume that. <laughs> I can't say, I'm just going to lock myself in my room because I'm giving something beautiful to the world. That's to me, that's beyond writer moxie to me. So I always feel like I hope I'm giving something. I hope my work gives something important and beautiful and says something, but I can't take that personally. This is personally for me. I can't take that for granted. So I also find that the, the, the service side of being a writer and extending myself to help other writers and other people is, is really, really important in terms of that nourishment. And really it's in that way, you could say that's selfish too, because I'm constantly learning from other writers and I'm constantly, even when I teach, sometimes I'll, I'll be in the middle of saying something as I'm teacher, even be in the middle of saying something as I'm doing this webinar and podcast. And I'll be like, oh shit, I'm not doing that. I didn't do that today. I forgot about that today in my work. Um, so it's a constant reminder to take myself deeper, um, to do the to do the 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 more important um, emotional and and better work for myself. So they they just kind of feed off each other. Yeah. Um, but you do you do so much, and you must be asked all the time to do things. So how do you determine when to say no? Great question. And I think I don't mean to um, partake in gender stereotypes, but I think women in particular, at least maybe women of our generation, um, yeah. have a really hard time saying no because we were raised to be a little more people pleasy. And it took me a long time to learn what I call the five second argument, or actually one of my therapists called it that, where you just say no. Like you can apologize and say, I'm sorry, no, I can't do this you don't give an explanation, like you don't, you know, do a little tap dance of charm or whatever. You just say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Boom, the end. And I have found it very liberating to yeah. do that. And really the barometer of that is, is it going to take away from the endeavors that I'm already committed to? And also, am I going to feel really stretched and strained if I do this to the point at which if I say yes to this thing, am I then going to have to back out? Like, is there a 50% chance that I might have to, you know, suddenly invent some excuse or like whatever, or just say like, I can't do this. I'm totally overcommitted and I'm so sorry. I would rather say no upfront than have to break a commitment. So yeah. really, I mean, I actually say no to most things and I feel a little bad about that, but I also justify it by saying like, I spend probably now, I want to say half of my day working on a Mighty Blaze stuff, which is a a service thing that also gives back, as you said, it's a completely selfish endeavor for me because I work with people I love doing something I love for yeah. a reason I love. So, you know, it's not like digging ditches, but it, that is my time allocation, <clears throat> excuse me. And then I actually spend a lot of other time doing like manuscript consultations and prepping to teach. So my writing time is, if I don't put it on a to-do list and I literally put it on a to-do list and I put it on my calendar, like I have to, um, 
make it valid for myself somehow, or it is the thing that gets pushed off the shelf first. And when yeah. you look at that sort of mathematical time allocation question, which isn't even thinking about like, when do I do yoga or when do I be a human person and see people, you know, in real life and walk my yeah. dog and eat and do self-care stuff. Um, it's very easy then to say no. And so what I have been doing, like I said, no yesterday to an author who asked for a blurb and you must get asked that all the time as well. Like people come to you saying, can you provide a quote? And I can't do quotes anymore because I read so much for Blaze, but I have yeah. this moment of total empathy for this author. Like, I don't yeah. know why this author over other authors, but I just thought, oh my gosh, like I said no to somebody and I could have helped her with her career by providing this quote. And it's so hard to ask for quotes. It's so awful. We all have to do it. And then I thought, well, but I can't. Like I literally can't find another six hours in my week to read that book because it will shove aside my own work and it will shove aside stuff I've committed to already and I will resent it. So when you hear that little inner like resentment clang, that's a good uh, way to say no. And then I also said to this author, like, please come to the blaze. We'll lift you up on your pub day. And at least I can offer that. You can offer some small compensation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I plan out my writing time. I plan out and I, I keep basically the same schedule every day. So I don't even have to revisit my schedule. Like there are certain times a day that I do certain work and certain times a day that I'll agree to other kinds of work. And I just kind of keep it even. And, and um, you know, some people might ask me to go to lunch or have coffee. I usually say no, because that's right in the middle of my day. If they ask me to, to go for dinner after, you know, at the end of the day, fine. Cause I can't, my brain has stopped working anyway. <laughs> And I'm happy to do that. Um, but I just kind of keep this that same schedule. And so every morning I wake up and I know exactly what I'm doing. And it's it's really, really helpful. I do, however, have control of my time in that way for the most part, even though I teach. I, my hours of teaching are mostly Monday nights. Um, a lot of people don't. So they get pulled by their jobs or whatever. But whatever sort of schedule that you can find for yourself, um, I think it's necessary because if, if also if we don't, if I find if I don't have that writing time, I find it kind of a meditation. I start getting itchy. I start getting grumpy. And that's when you really don't want to ask me to do something. <laughs> that's very true. I, I have been beating myself up for years and years and years in the fallow period, which I'm in right now, like kind of letting things rest a little bit. And I still feel a little bit guilty about it. Like I should be working all the, all the, all the, all the, all the time. I had a, um, a guy asked me this past week and like, were you working on? And I said, nothing. And he was like, you have nothing in the pipeline. You have nothing. I said, I'm working on nothing. And I actually felt okay about that for the first time in my life. And I've been writing since I was four years old. I just thought, yeah. No, I really need the time to let the well refill. Um, but I think it's super smart what you're saying about maintaining this schedule, because I do get sort of itchy and grumpy about it, not because I'm not writing, but because I feel like I should be working. And I don't recognize this always as part of the process. Like otherwise, for me, at least I'm just spinning my wheels. And I, yeah. I also would love to say to all the writers out there that every writer is different. Yeah. And part of the magic for me in having conversations like this with you, Michelle, and other writers is that we discover these commonalities where I'm like, oh, yes, that's totally right. I totally get itchy. Um, and it's so smart to set aside time to write every day, even if it's 10 minutes, like sit there and do your writer meditation or write a poem. Like all I can write right now are poems. I don't even write poems. Like I actually yeah. write my own poetry, but it's like, that's all I'm capable of doing right now while I'm following. <laughs> but um yeah. 
the other thing that's so joyous for me is hearing that everybody does things a little differently as well. So there's no one right or wrong way to do it. And so if you're listening to this thinking, oh my God, I am not a writer farmer. I don't do crop rotation, like, or I don't like do the same thing every day at every time. Like we're all giving you a bag of tricks and you can use the tricks that work for you and then leave the rest in the bag. So. Right. They have kids, they have full-time jobs, they have, they have other, a lot other um, things that they can't control their time as much. Um, and that, you know, getting your writing done, it can be a big privilege to find time every day to work on your own work. Um, but I do, I actually think you're not working on it. I think you are working on something because you're doing those poems. I mean, to me, that is still, you're still visiting that imaginative place that's carrying you from one thing to the next. And that's, that's still feeding that creative part of you. Mm -hmm. That is. And then talking to other writers is, and I always, I have a little bit of amnesia about my writing also, which is a very weird phenomenon. And I tell people like, oh, I'm not writing, I'm not working at all. And then I remember that like right before I go to bed, I do a journal dump every night. Like I sit in bed with my dog and I write for an hour, which is why I'm always up so late. I'm like, oh my God, it's like two o'clock. I didn't know I was going to write that much. And again, I tend to beat myself up for it because it's not fiction. It's not sculpted. It's not planned. It's not whatever, but it is sinking a taproot down to yeah. connect with that most essential part. So I think however you are finding time in your writing life to make it a regular habit, like I don't sleep without journaling. Um, yeah. And if you find a couple of minutes every day, even to, as you said, like I sort of meditate about writing sometimes and ask like, what is the next thing that is coming and just give myself that space. I should also say that on the flip side of all this like lovely woo-woo poetry journal meditation, like ching, um, yeah. when I do have a project, I am sort of a martinet about it. Like I have a dry erase calendar in my study and I will actually calendarize, which is a word my agent made up. And it's so clever. <laughs> she said to me one day, she's like, you know, Jenna, she's French. She's like, you know, Jenna, you should be calendarizing your writing in the same way that you calendarize, I don't know, your teaching or your speaking because it is valid. You are a writer. This is what you do. She's totally right. So when I'm working on a book, I... I do an outline, I break it down into as many scenes and chapters as I can see in my headlights, a lot of question marks in there. And then I literally map it to a dry erase calendar. So I know what scene I'm working on on each day. And I do build in a couple of days every week to like be a person and go to the dentist and get the car fixed or like, you know, do see some friends or whatever. But I really do stick to that schedule. And especially when I'm revising my drafts, I am very locked down and very focused. So a lot of my sort of letting the well refill stuff now is also accumulating energy for that time when you're like planting and tending then, you know, then harvesting and, you know, doing all the, all of the things that actually get the books made. Yeah. Yeah. I do that too. I create, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a planner like that. I, I like to schedule everything out. So I create a plan that I know is going to be challenging for me, but also, also doable. Um, and then I will re I will let myself revisit it if I, if I fall short in this way, or if I thought I was going to have this many chapters and suddenly I have five more chapters because I've made some discovery in the, in the process. And that's okay too. I think you can allow yourself to, to, again, the, the schedule is kind of a work in progress too, in, in my mind. So you can kind of move off that, but it's nice to have something there. It's nice to have a road or a plan there that you can move off from um, just to kind of keep in mind, like, you know, 
just to have just to have a goal. I would like to finish the book by X, or I'd like to, and this is how I can accomplish that without feeling like it's this gargantuan thing. If you break it apart in its pieces like that, it feels to me more manageable. So much more manageable. When I think about writing a book, I mean, I do think about writing a book and then I get totally paralyzed by it. Like I have on my wall in my study, I can flip the camera around and show you, but like I have outlines for two books that I have not started because they're like these huge, you know, and what I really need to do is start with like a piece of a book, like a, a short story that gets broken then into chapters that I build the scaffolding around. And I also, when I outline, it's a list of scenes. It's not fancy. Um, yeah. and the schedule is the same way. That's why it's a dry erase board and not like written in Sharpie. Like one of the things that being a writer for a long time has taught me is that woman plans, God laughs. So if I have like my dry erase board up like that, and I know exactly what I'm going to do, of course, there's going to be like, oh my God, my car got towed. And now I need to find, to track it down for three days or like whatever. I live such a glamorous and exciting life, but you know, there are always things that come up. Some of them are joyous things. Some of them are life tending tyranny of the quotidian kind of things. And um, so everything is revisable, but like you, I like to have a sort of a blueprint. So I know where I'm going with the understanding that that blueprint itself will be revised quite a bit. And I should say too, for the last book that I did, every book is a little different, but um, the memoir that I wrote about my dog, Woodrow, Woodrow on the Bench was a, a totally different writer balance thing for me than I had ever done before because I started that during the pandemic while I was just starting to work with the Blaze team to run the Blaze. So I was working a 16 hour day, literally in my underwear. I would wake up and do email in bed about the Blaze and be like, oh my God, like CEO life was like, ah, you know, entrepreneur life. But then I started getting up an hour earlier to work mm. on a chapter of Woodrow every day. And so I had that mapped out on my calendar. So I was like, all right, I, I'm not an early riser, 7 a.m. novelist. I think she'd be like 7 p.m. or maybe 11 p.m. with cocktails, like Seth Meyers. Novelist. I'm not an early morning writer either. So it's all like, <laughs> <laughs> but it was yeah. actually, it was really lovely to have those sips of early morning time. And then I felt connected to yeah. my friends who have kids who are like, I get up at four in the morning, five in the morning to have that quiet pool before life starts to rush in and all of its messy glory. And yeah. so I think if you're thinking like, how do I do this? Like ask yourself with each project, what is the right balance for this project? Given everything else I have going on in my life, how can I also make some space for this and honor it and value it and not beat myself up about it if that daily balance is a little fluid? Like take it seriously, but also understand that it's gonna shift a little bit. And don't try to keep in step with the writers around you because that is uh, you 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 will fall apart if you if you try to do that. Okay, let's. So we actually, Jen and I talked about like making T-shirts that said "Writer Moxie" on them. So if a listener and I'm like, I don't have time to make a T-shirt, and I have no uh, actual, you know. <laughs> visual artist skills at all. Um, so if a, a listener wants to do that for us and, and shoot it my way, I would love to see it. Um, what is Ryder Moxie? I don't know, Michelle. <laughs> I was thinking about it. I've been thinking about it ever since we came up with the idea of me talking about it. I'm like, that sounds great. I also want a t-shirt. But then I was thinking like, what does that even mean? And I think yeah. that I just I just wrote a character for a podcast script who turned out to be my favorite character. She's a saucy chambermaid who works in, in the Boston Fairmont Copley in 1943. And her name is Moxie DiLorenza. And she is the one 
tells it like it is and she is really saucy and she says things like look toots you got yourself in a real pickle and i don't envy you having to make this decision you know like how did you even do this jesus please us right so and i think of her as sort of like the living embodiment of mm. and i think what that means is is maybe equal parts like grit charm and like flirt. I don't know, maybe charm and flirt are the same thing, but I, I think of it as just like, um, it, which all could be, be rolled into like chutzpah, maybe, you know, like a certain amount of writer, of writer grit and like a little bit of bravado at the same time. And I just, I love that term so much. And when I was thinking about applying it to writing life, like how does that, how does that work? For public speaking, which is again what I consider to be my writer public face, like I try to be writer Moxie, you know, like you're gonna yeah. go out in the world and be like, I'm normally in my yoga pants and dressed only from the waist up, but now here I am and I have a microphone and I need to convince you that what I'm doing is like worthy and awesome and great and you should read this book, you know, like that's some Moxie, you know, I mean, because you're telling people, please take time out from your life to read my imaginary people and love them. And so there's like a sort of a P.T. Barnum-esque, like, you know, meets Mrs. Maisel quality that I think of as Moxie. But in our daily lives, maybe the writer Moxie is just having enough belief, which I know sort of flickers on some days, that what you're doing alone in your room with your yoga pants, without your audience, without your boyfriend, hot mic, you know, like without those things, like just doing the quiet thing is important. Like you have to- It can be, it can be, it can be yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think it's about, it's about saying no, that's writer Moxie. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's about, it's about taking a stand for other and other writers and other voices. That's I think writer Moxie. Um, it's about um, being proud of your own work. That mm-hmm. is writer Moxie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for me again, in doing this podcast, I'm like, I have no idea how to do a podcast. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, I wake up right before the webinar starts. I don't even want to deal with my hair. What's going on? I just don't. It's a podcast. You don't have to deal with your hair. We love this. I'm such a perfectionist. And what I decided was, I don't care. I'm going to get up in my robe and I'm going to do this. And people are going to see me for the webinar part, at least. And I decided I don't care. And my voice is not going to be perfect. I'm not going to speak perfectly. And that's just the way it's going to be. And that's who I am. Um, and to me, I mean, it's also about just being you as thoroughly as possible. I think that's, that's a part of it. Whatever, whatever you is. Um, so, um, and so you, I think everyone can determine what that writer moxie is for themselves because that's, that's what it is. That's what it's all about. That is a moxie to be like, I'm just going to start a podcast. I mean, both of us probably like, we both jumped into doing things we had no idea how to do because it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And I think like that also is like, it's, it's writer moxie where you're just like, I'm just going to do this thing. But don't we all do that when we start writing books? Like we all jump into our stories or poems or whatever you're doing as a writer. It's like, you just jump into this thing. You're like, I have no idea what this fucking thing is. I'm just going to do this because I have an urge to do it. I will say also that there's one more, um, component to the definition of writer moxie I think and that is when I was talking about grit I mean like hustle I mean like and this is something that I work with writers on all the time in the novel workshops that also like on plays and also any writer I meet anywhere ever like in an elevator I'll be like nobody is going to love your work as much as you do ever 
I mean, maybe mm -hmm. if you're lucky. Like I have seen some of my novelists this week get these Kirkus reviews where I'm like, okay, never mind. The Kirkus people love your books more than you do, even amazing. But you know, usually you're the one who has to get out into the world and really promote your work. And you have to yeah. then believe in it enough to do that. And you have to love it enough to do that. And also not hide your light under a bushel. Like you need to be a stage parent for that book because yeah. even when you have a traditional publisher, you have a publicist who loves you, which happens so often, you know, or an agent who loves you, who again happens so often. Like, you know, once you get to that place, you're still going to be the person who is going to advocate most for your own work. And you have to figure out a way to do that, not only in a way that feels good to you, but in a way that you do it all the time and you're willing to do whatever it takes. Like with my first book, um, I was kind of like, busking in the subway with it which was really hard because it's about a german woman during world war ii so not very catchy tune but i'd be like who wants to read this book about world war ii and, and like putting business cards under people's windshield wipers and on starbucks bulletin boards and then i started going to book clubs and i went to 800 book clubs in the boston area alone for that book in the day before gps like when i had like map quest printout directions and was going to three book clubs a day and that is a joy. And that is what I'm talking about. Like you have to be able within whatever the other bounties of your life afford you, your job or your children, um, your health, but you have to really like get excited about hustling yeah. for your book. That is some serious moxie. It takes guts and it takes energy and you better do it. <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah. You know. I, do, I love the idea of being a stage parent to your book. <laughs> I, I love that idea because your book is like this screaming child that really needs <laughs> get out there, get out there. You love the song, sing, do it. You know, you know, you elbow aside all the other uh, stage. <laughs> well, maybe I don't push all the other books off the stage. Not quite exactly, but there is something about like stage parents. Right. I think about how intense their belief is in yes you know, what their kid is doing. And to me, my books are like my kids. So I'm like, get out there and perform, you know, like somebody put a beautiful jacket on, you know, go out there and do it. But, you know, you have to advocate for them. And I, I think that's such a yeah. privilege to be able to do. So when you get to that stage, people, and when you're marketing, you know, just to be able to say, this is what my story or my book is about. And um, here's why I think it will appeal to people just to, you know, keep it factual, but keep it like, keep your foot on the pedal there. Like you're the one who will do it best. I love it. I love it. And I think, you know, when you're putting yourself out there, if you're going to book clubs, have, if you're doing talks, whatever sort of marketing you're doing, you can find the avenue that gives you energy yes. um, and follow that. So for you, I think obviously the book clubs, because you like, like meeting readers and like that, that working, working with people, being with people, I think that probably, even though it's probably exhausting too, probably gave you a lot of energy. Yeah. So you dive right into that. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I thought yeah. for so many years that I was a professional misanthrope and that a writer needed to not like people. And the book clubs actually taught me that I liked people. Like I was a shy kid. I was a fat kid. I was a bullied kid. And so I was like very suspicious and scared of people for years and the book clubs really, I wrote an article at one point called How the Book Club Saved My Life. And it was mostly about my book, you know, the, the debut novel, which they boosted from obscurity. But um, really, it was also about teaching me that I didn't need to be afraid of people. And so yeah. now my 
favorite thing to do is to walk into a room of like 200, like the bigger crowd, the better, honestly, and just be like, hey, we're all here to talk about books. It's so great, you know? So I love that. But for the, you know, two and a half years that we couldn't do that when the pandemic was really raging. um, And I watched as everybody else did, as my events were canceled, 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 canceled. Um, social media was for me a very good stopgap. I have a, a very robust community on social media and try to engage as much as possible there. And then the blaze too. So whatever yeah. you feel comfortable with as a writer, when I um, talk to writers about social media, it's the same advice. Like, what is it that gets you excited? What can you do to advocate for your work in a way that does not feel onerous, that in fact feels like a joyous connection. And we have so many avenues to do that now, so many channels. So it could be in person, it could be getting in a hot air balloon, it could be book talk, it could be, you know, whatever, whatever you can think of, you can do it. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So if 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 you don't actually know about A Mighty Blaze, I think you probably already do, but if you don't, make sure you do a search for it to see what Jenna and and a bunch of other writers, Jane Roper, um, uh, Rachel Barenbaum, so many other writers I know are, are working hard to make that happen. And it, it is its own fire. It's fantastic. So I, I would look for that. Thank you so much for doing that, Jenna. So we're going to have to end... Um, by the way, you can find our full March writing challenge schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. And if you want to join our daily webinars in March, email me at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You could also find the podcast version of these webinars on Spotify, Apple, and other podcast platforms. And if you really like what we're doing, it would be fabulous if you could follow, rate, and review our podcast so that other people could find us. So Jenna, are you going to be able to get some writing done today? I am. I am. I I think I'm going to like sit for 10 minutes. Well, obviously I'm going to journal before I go to bed and do my huge journal dump about my very exciting and glamorous life and moxie and so on. But (laughs) I I think that, I mean, honestly, you can't see this if you're listening to the podcast, but I have a journal I write by hand with a Sharpie and I'm going to sit with my glasses on and just, you know, noodle around a little bit and say like, what do I want to write today? And you can always find 10 minutes. I don't care who you are. You can find 10 minutes to do this for yourself. So I will take that 10 minutes. And I hope you do too, Michelle, for all the good things that you do for other people. It's amazing podcast. Thank you so, so much. All right, everybody. We're going to have to take a break. Jenna, you're fabulous. I need to get everyone back to the writing chair. So have a fabulous writing day. Thank you.